Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Brian Roberg, www.brianroberg.org. The Innocence of Father Brown by G. K. Chesterton. The Wrong Shape. Certain of the great roads going north out of London continue far into the country a sort of attenuated and interrupted spectre of a street, with great gaps in the building, but preserving the line. Here will be a group of shops, followed by a fenced field or paddock, and then a famous public house, and then perhaps a market garden or a nursery garden, and then one large private house, and then another field and another inn, and so on. If anyone walks along one of these roads, he will pass a house which will probably catch his eye, though he may not be able to explain its attraction. It is a long, low house, running parallel with the road, painted mostly white and pale green, with a veranda and sun blinds, and porches capped with those quaint sort of cupolas, like wooden umbrellas that one sees in some old-fashioned houses. In fact, it is an old-fashioned house, very English and very suburban in the good old wealthy Clapham sense. And yet the house has a look of having been built chiefly for the hot weather. Looking at its white paint and sunblinds, one thinks vaguely of pougarees and even of palm trees. I cannot trace the feeling to its root. Perhaps the place was built by an Anglo-Indian. Anyone passing this house, I say, would be namelessly fascinated by it, would feel that it was a place about which some story was to be told. And he would have been right, as you shall shortly hear. For this is the story, the story of the strange things that did really happen in it in the Whitsuntide of the year 18 blank. Anyone passing the house on the Thursday before Whit Sunday, at about half past four p.m., would have seen the front door open, and Father Brown, of the small church of St. Mungo, come out smoking a large pipe in company with a very tall French friend of his called Flambeau, who was smoking a very small cigarette. These persons may or may not be of interest to the reader, but the truth is, that they were not the only interesting things that were displayed when the front door of the white and green house was opened. There are further peculiarities about this house, 
which must be described to start with, not only that the reader may understand this tragic tale, but also that he may realize what it was that the opening of the door revealed. The whole house was built upon the plan of a T, but a T with a very long cross-piece and a very short tail-piece. The long cross-piece was the frontage that ran along in face of the street, with the front door in the middle. It was two stories high and contained nearly all the important rooms. The short tail-piece, which ran out at the back immediately opposite the front door, was one story high and consisted only of two long rooms, the one leading into the other. The first of these two rooms was the study in which the celebrated Mr. Quinton wrote his wild oriental poems and romances. The farther room was a glass conservatory full of tropical blossoms of quite unique and almost monstrous beauty, and on such afternoons as these, glowing with gorgeous sunlight. Thus, when the hall door was open, many a passer-by literally stopped to stare and gasp, for he looked down a perspective of rich apartments to something really like a transformation scene in a fairy play. Purple clouds and golden suns and crimson stars that were at once scorchingly vivid and yet transparent and far away. Leonard Quinton, the poet, had himself most carefully arranged this effect, and it is doubtful whether he so perfectly expressed his personality in any of his poems. For he was a man who drank and bathed in colors, who indulged his lust for color somewhat to the neglect of form, even of good form. This it was that had turned his genius so wholly to eastern art and imagery, to those bewildering carpets or blinding embroideries in which all the colors seem fallen into a fortunate chaos, having nothing to typify or to teach. He had attempted, not perhaps with complete artistic success, but with acknowledged imagination and invention, to compose epics and love stories reflecting the riot of violent and even cruel color, tales of tropical heavens of burning gold or blood-red copper, of eastern heroes who rode with twelve turbaned miters upon elephants painted purple or peacock green, of gigantic jewels that a hundred negroes could not carry, but which burned with ancient and strange-hued fires. In short, to put the matter from the more common point of view, he dealt much in eastern heavens, rather worse than most western hells. In eastern monarchs, whom we might possibly call maniacs, and in eastern jewels, which a Bond Street jeweler, if the hundred staggering negroes brought them into his shop, might possibly not regard as genuine. Quinton was a genius, if a morbid one, and even his morbidity 
appeared more in his life than in his work. In temperament he was weak and waspish, and his health had suffered heavily from oriental experiments with opium. His wife, a handsome, hard-working, and, indeed, overworked woman, objected to the opium, but objected much more to a live Indian hermit in white and yellow robes, whom her husband insisted on entertaining for months together, a Virgil to guide his spirit through the heavens and the hells of the East. It was out of this artistic household that Father Brown and his friend stepped onto the doorstep, and to judge from their faces, they stepped out of it with much relief. Flambeau had known Quintin in wild student days in Paris, and they had renewed the acquaintance for a weekend. But apart from Flambeau's more responsible developments of late, he did not get on well with the poet now. Choking oneself with opium and writing little erotic verses on vellum was not his notion of how a gentleman should go to the devil. As the two paused on the doorstep, before taking a turn in the garden, the front gate was thrown open with violence, and a young man with a billycock hat on the back of his head tumbled up the steps in his eagerness. He was a dissipated-looking youth with a gorgeous red necktie all awry, as if he had slept in it, and he kept fidgeting and lashing about with one of those little jointed canes. "'I say,' he said breathlessly, "'I want to see old Quinton. I must see him. Has he gone?' "'Mr. Quinton is in, I believe,' said Father Brown, cleaning his pipe. "'But I do not know if you can see him. The doctor is with him at present.' The young man, who seemed not to be perfectly sober, stumbled into the hall, and at the same moment the doctor came out of Quinton's study, shutting the door and beginning to put on his gloves. "'See Mr. Quinton?' the doctor said coolly. "'No, I'm afraid you can't. In fact, you mustn't on any account. Nobody must see him. I've just given him his sleeping draft.' "'No, but look here, old chap,' said the youth in the red tie, trying affectionately to capture the doctor by the lapels of his coat. "'Look here. I'm simply sewn up, I tell you. I—' "'It's no good, Mr. Atkinson,' said the doctor, forcing him to fall back. "'When you can alter the effects of a drug, I'll alter my decision.' And, settling on his hat, he stepped out into the sunlight with the other two. He was a bull-necked, good-tempered little man with a small mustache, inexpressibly ordinary, yet giving an impression of capacity. The young man in the billycock, who did not seem to be gifted with any tact in dealing with people beyond the general idea of clutching hold of their coats, stood outside the door as dazed as if he had been thrown out bodily, and silently watched the other three walk away together through the garden. "'That was a sound spanking lie I told just now,' remarked the medical man, laughing. "'In point of fact, 
Poor Quinton doesn't have his sleeping draft for nearly half an hour. But I'm not going to have him bothered with that little beast who only wants to borrow money that he wouldn't pay back if he could. He's a dirty little scamp, though he is Mrs. Quinton's brother, and she's as fine a woman as ever walked. Yes, said Father Brown. She's a good woman. So I propose to hang about the garden till the creature has cleared off, went on the doctor, and then I'll go into Quinton with the medicine. Atkinson can't get in, because I locked the door. In that case, Dr. Harris, said Flambeau, we might as well walk round at the back by the end of the conservatory. There's no entrance to it that way, but it's worth seeing, even from the outside. Yes, and I might get a squint at my patient, laughed the doctor, for he prefers to lie on an ottoman right at the end of the conservatory, amid all those blood-red poinsettias. It would give me the creeps. But what are you doing? Father Brown had stopped for a moment, and picked up out of the long grass, where it had almost been wholly hidden, a queer, crooked, oriental knife, inlaid exquisitely in colored stones and metals. "'What is this?' asked Father Brown, regarding it with some disfavor. "'Oh, Quintin's, I suppose,' said Dr. Harris carelessly. "'He has all sorts of Chinese knick-knacks about the place. "'Or perhaps it belongs to that mild Hindu of his whom he keeps on a string.' "'What Hindu?' asked Father Brown still staring at the dagger in his hand. "'Oh, some Indian conjurer,' said the doctor lightly. "'A fraud, of course.' "'You don't believe in magic?' asked Father Brown, without looking up. "'Oh, crikey! Magic!' said the doctor. "'It's very beautiful,' said the priest, in a low, dreaming voice. "'The colors are very beautiful.' but it's the wrong shape. What for? asked Flambeau, staring. For anything. It's the wrong shape in the abstract. Don't you ever feel that about Eastern art? The colors are intoxicatingly lovely, but the shapes are mean and bad, deliberately mean and bad. I have seen wicked things in a turkey carpet. Mon Dieu! cried Flambeau, laughing. They are letters and symbols in a language I don't know, but I know they stand for evil words, went on the priest, his voice growing lower and lower. The lines go wrong on purpose, like serpents doubling to escape. What the devil are you talking about? said the doctor with a loud laugh. Flambeau spoke quietly to him in answer. The father sometimes gets this mystic's cloud on him he said, but I give you fair warning that I have never known him have it except when there was some evil quite near. Oh, rats, said the scientist. Why, look at it, cried Father Brown, holding out the crooked knife at arm's length, as if it were some glittering snake. Don't you see it is the wrong shape? Don't you see that it has no hearty and plain purpose? It does not point like a spear, 
It does not sweep like a scythe. It does not look like a weapon. It looks like an instrument of torture. Well, as you don't seem to like it, said the jolly Harris, it had better be taken back to its owner. Haven't we come to the end of this confounded conservatory yet? This house is the wrong shape, if you like. You don't understand, said Father Brown, shaking his head. The shape of this house is quaint. It is even laughable. But there's nothing wrong about it. As they spoke, they came round the curve of glass that ended the conservatory, an uninterrupted curve, for there was neither door nor window by which to enter at that end. The glass, however, was clear, and the sun still bright, though beginning to set, and they could see not only the flamboyant blossoms inside, but the frail figure of the poet in a brown velvet coat lying languidly on the sofa, having, apparently, fallen half asleep over a book. He was a pale, slight man, with loose chestnut hair and a fringe of beard that was the paradox of his face, for the beard made him look less manly. These traits were well known to all three of them, but even had it not been so, it may be doubted whether they would have looked at Quinton just then. Their eyes were riveted on another object. Exactly in their path, immediately outside the round end of the glass building, was standing a tall man, whose drapery fell to his feet in faultless white, and whose bare, brown skull, face and neck, gleamed in the setting sun like splendid bronze. He was looking through the glass at the sleeper, and he was more motionless than a mountain. "'Who is that?' cried Father Brown, stepping back with a hissing intake of his breath. "'Oh, it is only that Hindu humbug,' growled Harris. "'But I don't know what the deuce he's doing there.' "'It looks like hypnotism,' said Flambeau, biting his black moustache. "'Why are you unmedical fellows always talking bosh about hypnotism?' cried the doctor. "'It looks a deal more like burglary.' "'Well, we will speak to it, at any rate,' said Flambeau, who was always for action. One long stride took him to the place where the Indian stood. Bowing from his great height, which overtopped even the Orientals, he said, with placid impudence, "'Good evening, sir. Do you want anything?' Quite slowly, like a great ship turning into a harbor, the great yellow face turned and looked at last over its white shoulder. They were startled to see that its yellow eyelids were quite sealed, as in sleep. "'Thank you,' said the face, in excellent English. "'I want nothing.' Then, half opening the lids, so as to show a slit of opalescent eyeball, he repeated, I want nothing. Then he opened his eyes wide with a startling stare, said, I want nothing, and went rustling away into the rapidly darkening garden. 
Christian is more modest, muttered Father Brown. He wants something. What on earth was he doing? asked Flambeau, knitting his black brows and lowering his voice. I should like to talk to you later, said Father Brown. The sunlight was still a reality, but it was the red light of evening, and the bulk of the garden trees and bushes grew blacker and blacker against it. They turned round the end of the conservatory, and walked in silence down the other side to get round to the front door. As they went, they seemed to wake something, as one startles a bird, in the deeper corner between the study and the main building and again they saw the white-robed fakir slide out of the shadow and slip round towards the front door. To their surprise, however, he had not been alone. They found themselves abruptly pulled up and forced to banish their bewilderment by the appearance of Mrs. Quinton, with her heavy golden hair and square pale face, advancing on them out of the twilight. She looked a little stern, but was entirely courteous. "'Good evening, Dr. Harris,' was all she said. "'Good evening, Mrs. Quinton,' said the little doctor heartily. "'I'm just going to give your husband his sleeping draft.' "'Yes,' she said in a clear voice. "'I think it is quite time.' And she smiled at them and went sweeping into the house. "'That woman's overdriven,' said Father Brown. "'That's the kind of woman that does her duty for twenty years, and then does something dreadful.' The little doctor looked at him for the first time with an eye of interest. "'Did you ever study medicine?' he asked. "'You have to know something of the mind as well as the body,' answered the priest. We have to know something of the body as well as the mind. Well, said the doctor, I think I'll go and give Quinton his stuff. They had turned the corner of the front façade and were approaching the front doorway. As they turned into it, they saw the man in the white robe for the third time. He came so straight towards the front door that it seemed quite incredible that he had not just come out of the study opposite to it. Yet they knew that the study door was locked. Father Brown and Flambeau, however, kept this weird contradiction to themselves, and Dr. Harris was not a man to waste his thoughts on the impossible. He permitted the omnipresent Asiatic to make his exit, and then stepped briskly into the hall. There he found a figure which he had already forgotten. The inane Atkinson was still hanging about, humming and poking things with his knobby cane. The doctor's face had a spasm of disgust and decision, and he whispered rapidly to his companions, I must lock the door again, or this rat will get in. But I shall be out again in two minutes. He rapidly unlocked the door and locked it again behind him, just balking a blundering charge from the young man and the billycock. The young man threw himself impatiently on a hall chair. Flambeau looked at a Persian illumination on the wall, 
Father Brown, who seemed in a sort of daze, dully eyed the door. In about four minutes the door was opened again. Atkinson was quicker this time. He sprang forward, held the door open for an instant, and called out, "'Oh, I say, Quinton, I want—' From the other end of the study came the clear voice of Quinton, in something between a yawn and a yell of weary laughter. "'Oh, I know what you want. Take it and leave me in peace. I'm writing a song about peacocks.' Before the door closed, half a sovereign came flying through the aperture, and Atkinson, stumbling forward, caught it with singular dexterity. "'So that's settled,' said the doctor, and, locking the door savagely, he led the way out into the garden. "'Poor Leonard can get a little peace now,' he added to Father Brown. "'He's locked in all by himself for an hour or two. Yes, answered the priest, and his voice sounded jolly enough when we left him. Then he looked gravely round the garden and saw the loose figure of Atkinson standing and jingling the half-sovereign in his pocket, and beyond, in the purple twilight, the figure of the Indian sitting bolt upright upon a bank of grass with his face turned towards the setting sun. Then he said abruptly, "'Where's Mrs. Quinton?' "'She has gone up to her room,' said the doctor. "'That is her shadow on the blind.' Father Brown looked up, and frowningly scrutinized a dark outline at the gaslit window. "'Yes,' he said, "'that is her shadow,' and he walked a yard or two, and threw himself upon a garden seat. Flambeau sat down beside him, but the doctor was one of those energetic people who live naturally on their legs. He walked away, smoking, into the twilight, and the two friends were left together. "'My father,' said Flambeau in French, "'what is the matter with you?' Father Brown was silent and motionless for half a minute. Then he said, "'Superstition is irreligious,' but there is something in the air of this place. I think it's that Indian, at least partly. He sank into silence and watched the distant outline of the Indian, who still sat rigid as if in prayer. At first sight he seemed motionless, but as Father Brown watched him, he saw that the man swayed ever so slightly with a rhythmic movement just as the dark treetops swayed ever so slightly in the wind that was creeping up the dim garden paths and shuffling the fallen leaves a little. The landscape was growing rapidly dark, as if for a storm, but they could still see all the figures in their various places. Atkinson was leaning against a tree with a listless face. Quinton's wife was still at her window, the doctor had gone strolling round the end of the conservatory. They could see his cigar like a will-o'-the-wisp. And the fakir still sat rigid and yet rocking, while the trees above him began to rock and almost to roar. Storm was certainly coming. 
when that Indian spoke to us, went on Father Brown in a conversational undertone, I had a sort of vision, a vision of him and all his universe. Yet he only said the same thing three times. When first he said, I want nothing, it meant only that he was impenetrable, that Asia does not give itself away. Then he said again, I want nothing, and I knew that he meant that he was sufficient to himself, like a cosmos, that he needed no God, neither admitted any sins. And when he said the third time, I want nothing, he said it with blazing eyes. And I knew that he meant literally what he said, that nothing was his desire and his home, that he was weary for nothing as for wine, that annihilation, the mere destruction of everything or anything. Two drops of rain fell, and for some reason Flambeau started and looked up, as if they had stung him. And the same instant, the doctor down by the end of the conservatory began running towards them, calling out something as he ran. As he came among them like a bombshell, the restless Atkinson happened to be taking a turn nearer to the house front, and the doctor clutched him by the collar in a convulsive grip. "'Foul play!' he cried. "'What have you been doing to him, you dog?' The priest had sprung erect, and had the voice of steel of a soldier in command. "'No fighting,' he cried coolly. "'We are enough to hold anyone we want to. "'What is the matter, doctor?' "'Things are not right with Quinton,' said the doctor, quite white. "'I could just see him through the glass, and I don't like the way he's lying. "'It's not as I left him, anyhow.' "'Let us go into him,' said Father Brown shortly. "'You can leave Mr. Atkinson alone. "'I have had him in sight since we heard Quinton's voice.' "'I will stop here and watch him,' said Flambeau hurriedly. "'You go in and see.' "'The doctor and the priest flew to the study door, "'unlocked it, and fell into the room. "'In doing so they nearly fell over the large mahogany table in the centre "'at which the poet usually wrote, "'for the place was lit only by a small fire kept for the invalid. "'In the middle of this table lay a single sheet of paper, "'evidently left there on purpose.' The doctor snatched it up, glanced at it, handed it to Father Brown, and, crying, Good God, look at that! plunged toward the glass room beyond, where the terrible tropic flowers still seemed to keep a crimson memory of the sunset. Father Brown read the words three times before he put down the paper. The words were, I die by my own hand, Yet I die murdered. They were in the quite inimitable, not to say illegible, handwriting of Leonard Quinton. Then Father Brown, still keeping the paper in his hand, strode towards the conservatory, only to meet his medical friend coming back with a face of assurance and collapse. He's done it, said Harris.
they went together through the gorgeous, unnatural beauty of cactus and azalea, and found Leonard Quinton, poet and romancer, with his head hanging downward off his ottoman, and his red curls sweeping the ground. Into his left side was thrust the queer dagger that they had picked up in the garden, and his limp hand still rested on the hilt. Outside, the storm had come at one stride, like the night in Coleridge, and garden and glass roof were darkened with driving rain. Father Brown seemed to be studying the paper more than the corpse. He held it close to his eyes, and seemed to be trying to read it in the twilight. Then he held it up against the faint light, and, as he did so, lightning stared at them for an instant so white that the paper looked black against it. Darkness full of thunder followed, and after the thunder, Father Brown's voice said out of the dark, Doctor, this paper is the wrong shape. What do you mean? asked Dr. Harris, with a frowning stare. It isn't square, answered Brown. It has a sort of edge snipped off at the corner. What does it mean? How the deuce should I know? growled the doctor. Shall we move this poor chap, do you think? He's quite dead. No, answered the priest. We must leave him as he lies and send for the police. But he was still scrutinizing the paper. As they went back through the study, he stopped by the table and picked up a small pair of nail scissors. Ah, he said, with a sort of relief. This is what he did it with but yet, and he knitted his brows. Oh, stop fooling with that scrap of paper, said the doctor emphatically. It was a fad of his. He had hundreds of them. He cut all his paper like that, as he pointed to a stack of sermon paper still unused on another and smaller table. Father Brown went up to it and held up a sheet. It was the same irregular shape. Quite so, he said, and here I see the corners that were snipped off. And to the indignation of his colleague, he began to count them. That's all right, he said, with an apologetic smile. Twenty-three sheets cut, and twenty-two corners cut off them. And as I see you are impatient, we will rejoin the others. Who is to tell his wife? asked Dr. Harris. Will you go and tell her now, while I send a servant for the police? As you will, said Father Brown indifferently, and he went out to the hall door. Here also he found a drama, though of a more grotesque sort. It showed nothing less than his big friend Flambeau in an attitude to which he had long been unaccustomed, while upon the pathway at the bottom of the steps was sprawling with his boots in the air the amiable Atkinson, his billycock hat and walking cane sent flying in opposite directions along the path. Atkinson had at length wearied of Flambeau's almost paternal custody, and had endeavored to knock him down, 
which was by no means a smooth game to play with the Roy de Apache, even after that monarch's abdication. Flambeau was about to leap upon his enemy and secure him once more, when the priest patted him easily on the shoulder. Make it up with Mr. Atkinson, my friend, he said. Beg a mutual pardon and say good night. We need not detain him any longer. Then, as Atkinson rose somewhat doubtfully and gathered his hat and stick and went towards the garden gate, Father Brown said in a more serious voice, Where is that Indian? They all three, for the doctor had joined them, turned involuntarily towards the dim grassy bank amid the tossing trees purple with twilight, where they had last seen the brown man swaying in his strange prayers. The Indian was gone. "'Confound him!' cried the doctor, stamping furiously. "'Now I know that it was that nigger that did it.' "'I thought you didn't believe in magic,' said Father Brown quietly. "'No more I did,' said the doctor, rolling his eyes. "'I only know that I loathed that yellow devil when I thought he was a sham wizard.' and I shall loathe him more if I come to think he was a real one. Well, his having escaped is nothing, said Flambeau, for we could have proved nothing and done nothing against him. One hardly goes to the parish constable with a story of suicide imposed by witchcraft or auto-suggestion. Meanwhile, Father Brown had made his way into the house and now went to break the news to the wife of the dead man. When he came out again he looked a little pale and tragic, but what passed between them in that interview was never known, even when all was known. Flambeau, who was talking quietly with the doctor, was surprised to see his friend reappear so soon at his elbow. But Brown took no notice, and merely drew the doctor apart. "'You have sent for the police, haven't you?' he asked. "'Yes,' answered Harris. "'They ought to be here in ten minutes.' "'Will you do me a favor?' said the priest quietly. "'The truth is, I make a collection of these curious stories, "'which often contain, as in the case of our Hindu friend, "'elements which can hardly be put into a police report.' Now. I want you to write out a report of this case for my private use. Yours is a clever trade, he said, looking the doctor gravely and steadily in the face. I sometimes think that you know some details of this matter which you have not thought fit to mention. Mine is a confidential trade like yours, and I will treat anything you write for me in strict confidence. But write the whole. The doctor, who had been listening thoughtfully with his head a little on one side, looked the priest in the face for an instant, and said, All right, and went into the study, closing the door behind him. Flambeau, said Father Brown, there is a long seat there under the veranda, where we can smoke out of the rain. 
you are my only friend in the world, and I want to talk to you, or, perhaps, be silent with you. They established themselves comfortably in the veranda seat. Father Brown, against his common habit, accepted a good cigar and smoked it steadily in silence, while the rain shrieked and rattled on the roof of the veranda. My friend, he said at length, this is a very queer case, a very queer case. I should think it was, said Flambeau, with something like a shudder. You call it queer, and I call it queer, said the other, and yet we mean quite opposite things. The modern mind always mixes up two different ideas. Mystery, in the sense of what is marvelous, and mystery in the sense of what is complicated. That is half its difficulty about miracles. A miracle is startling, but it is simple. It is simple because it is a miracle. It is power coming directly from God, or the devil, instead of indirectly through nature or human wills. Now, you mean that this business is marvelous because it is miraculous, because it is witchcraft worked by a wicked Indian. Understand, I do not say that it was not spiritual or diabolic. Heaven and hell only know by what surrounding influences strange sins come into the lives of men. But for the present, my point is this. If it was pure magic, as you think, then it is marvelous, but it is not mysterious, that is, it is not complicated. The quality of a miracle is mysterious, but its manner is simple. Now, the manner of this business has been the reverse of simple. The storm that had slackened for a little seemed to be swelling again, and there came heavy movements as of faint thunder. Father Brown let fall the ash of his cigar and went on. There has been in this incident, he said, a twisted, ugly, complex quality that does not belong to the straight bolts either of heaven or hell. As one knows the crooked track of a snail, I know the crooked track of a man. The white lightning opened its enormous eye in one wink, the sky shut up again, and the priest went on. Of all these crooked things, the crookedest was the shape of that piece of paper. It was crookeder than the dagger that killed him. You mean the paper on which Quinton confessed his suicide, said Flambeau. I mean the paper on which Quinton wrote, I die by my own hand, answered Father Brown. The shape of that paper, my friend, was the wrong shape. The wrong shape, if ever I have seen it in this wicked world. It only had a corner snipped off, said Flambeau, and I understand that all Quinton's paper was cut that way. It was a very odd way, said the other, and a very bad way to my taste and fancy. Look here, Flambeau, 
this Quinton, God receive his soul, was perhaps a bit of a cur in some ways, but he really was an artist, with the pencil as well as the pen. His handwriting, though hard to read, was bold and beautiful. I can't prove what I say, I can't prove anything. But I tell you with the full force of conviction that he could never have cut that mean little piece off a sheet of paper. If he had wanted to cut down paper for some purpose of fitting in, or binding up, or what not, he would have made quite a different slash with the scissors. Do you remember the shape? It was a mean shape. It was a wrong shape. Like this. Don't you remember? And he waved his burning cigar before him in the darkness, making irregular squares so rapidly that Flambeau really seemed to see them as fiery hieroglyphics upon the darkness, hieroglyphics such as his friend had spoken of, which are undecipherable, yet can have no good meaning. But, said Flambeau, as the priest put his cigar in his mouth again and leaned back, staring at the roof, suppose somebody else did use the scissors. Why should somebody else, cutting pieces of his sermon paper, make Quintin commit suicide. Father Brown was still leaning back and staring at the roof, but he took his cigar out of his mouth and said, Quintin never did commit suicide. Flambeau stared at him. Why, confound it all, he cried. Then why did he confess to suicide? The priest leaned forward again, settled his elbows on his knees, looked at the ground, and said, in a low, distinct voice, He never did confess to suicide. Flambeau laid his cigar down. You mean, he said, that the writing was forged? No, said Father Brown. Quinton wrote it all right. Well, there you are, said the aggravated Flambeau. Quinton wrote, I die by my own hand, with his own hand, on a plain piece of paper. Of the wrong shape, said the priest calmly. Oh, the shape be damned, cried Flambeau. What has the shape to do with it? There were twenty-three snipped papers, resumed Brown unmoved and only twenty-two pieces snipped off. Therefore, one of the pieces had been destroyed, probably that from the written paper. Does that suggest anything to you? A light dawned on Flambeau's face, and he said, There was something else written by Quinton, some other words. They will tell you I die by my own hand, or... Do not believe that. Hotter, as the children say, said his friend. But the piece was hardly half an inch across. There was no room for one word, let alone five. Can you think of anything hardly bigger than a comma, which the man with hell in his heart had to tear away as a testimony against him? I can think of nothing, said Flambeau at last. What about quotation marks? 
said the priest, and flung his cigar far into the darkness like a shooting star. All words had left the other man's mouth, and Father Brown said, like one going back to fundamentals, Leonard Quinton was a romancer, and was writing an oriental romance about wizardry and hypnotism. He, at this moment the door opened briskly behind them, and the doctor came out with his hat on. He put a long envelope into the priest's hands. "'That's the document you wanted,' he said. "'And I must be getting home. Good night.' "'Good night,' said Father Brown, as the doctor walked briskly to the gate. He had left the front door open, so that a shaft of gaslight fell upon them. In the light of this, Brown opened the envelope and read the following words. Dear Father Brown, Fisisti Galilei, Otherwise, damn your eyes, which are very penetrating ones. Can it be possible that there is something in all that stuff of yours, after all? I am a man who has ever since boyhood believed in nature and in all natural functions and instincts, whether men called them moral or immoral. Long before I became a doctor, when I was a schoolboy keeping mice and spiders, I believed that to be a good animal is the best thing in the world. But just now I am shaken. I have believed in nature, but it seems as if nature could betray a man. Can there be anything in your bosh? I am really getting morbid. I loved Quinton's wife. What was there wrong in that? Nature told me to, and it's love that makes the world go round. I also thought quite sincerely that she would be happier with a clean animal like me than with that tormenting little lunatic. What was there wrong in that? I was only facing facts, like a man of science. She would have been happier. According to my own creed, I was quite free to kill Quinton, which was the best thing for everybody, even himself. But as a healthy animal, I had no notion of killing myself. I resolved, therefore, that I would never do it until I saw a chance that would leave me scot-free. I saw that chance this morning. I have been three times, all told, into Quinton's study today. The first time I went in, he would talk about nothing but the weird tale called The Cure of a Saint, which he was writing, which was all about how some Indian hermit made an English colonel kill himself by thinking about him. He showed me the last sheets, and even read me the last paragraph, which was something like this. The conqueror of the Punjab, a mere yellow skeleton, but still gigantic, managed to lift himself on his elbow and gasp in his nephew's ear, I die by my own hand, yet I die murdered. It so happened by one chance out of a hundred that those last words were written at the top of a new sheet of paper. I left the room, and went out into the garden 
intoxicated with a frightful opportunity. We walked around the house, and two more things happened in my favor. You suspected an Indian, and you found a dagger which the Indian might most probably use. Taking the opportunity to stuff it in my pocket, I went back to Quinton's study, locked the door, and gave him his sleeping draft. He was against answering Atkinson at all, but I urged him to call out and quiet the fellow, because I wanted a clear proof that Quinton was alive when I left the room for the second time. Quinton lay down in the conservatory, and I came through the study. I'm a quick man with my hands, and in a minute and a half I had done what I wanted to do. I had emptied all the first part of Quinton's romance into the fireplace, where it burnt to ashes. Then I saw that the quotation marks wouldn't do, so I snipped them off, and to make it seem likelier, snipped the whole choir to match. Then I came out with the knowledge that Quinton's confession of suicide lay on the front table, while Quinton lay alive but asleep in the conservatory beyond. The last act was a desperate one. You can guess it. I pretended to have seen Quinton dead and rushed to his room. I delayed you with the paper and, being a quick man with my hands, killed Quinton while you were looking at his confession of suicide. He was half asleep, being drugged, and I put his own hand on the knife and drove it into his body. The knife was of so queer a shape that no one but an operator could have calculated the angle that would reach his heart. I wonder if you noticed this. When I had done it, the extraordinary thing happened. Nature deserted me. I felt ill. I felt just as if I had done something wrong. I think my brain is breaking up. I feel some sort of desperate pleasure in thinking I have told the thing to somebody, that I shall not have to be alone with it if I marry and have children. What is the matter with me? Madness. Or can one have remorse, just as if one were in Byron's poems? I cannot write any more. James Erskine Harris Father Brown carefully folded up the letter and put it in his breast pocket, just as there came a loud peal at the gate bell, and the wet waterproofs of several policemen gleamed in the road outside. End of the Wrong Shape This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Brian Roberg, www.brianroberg.org. The Innocence of Father Brown by G. K. Chesterton. The Sins of Prince Saradine. When Flambeau took his month's holiday from his office in Westminster, he took it in a small sailing boat, so small 
that it passed much of its time as a rowing boat. He took it, moreover, in little rivers in the eastern counties, rivers so small that the boat looked like a magic boat, sailing on land through meadows and cornfields. The vessel was just comfortable for two people. There was room only for necessities, and Flambeau had stocked it with such things as his special philosophy considered necessary. They reduced themselves, apparently, to four essentials. Tins of salmon, if he should want to eat. Loaded revolvers, if he should want to fight. A bottle of brandy, presumably in case he should faint. And a priest, presumably in case he should die. With this light luggage, he crawled down the little Norfolk rivers, intending to reach the broads at last, but meanwhile delighting in the overhanging gardens and meadows, the mirrored mansions or villages, lingering to fish in the pools and corners, and in some sense, hugging the shore. Like a true philosopher, Flambeau had no aim in his holiday. But, like a true philosopher, he had an excuse. He had a sort of half-purpose, which he took just so seriously that its success would crown the holiday, but just so lightly that its failure would not spoil it. Years ago, when he had been a king of thieves and the most famous figure in Paris, he had often received wild communications of approval, denunciation, or even love. But one had, somehow, stuck in his memory. It consisted simply of a visiting card, in an envelope with an English postmark. On the back of the card was written in French and in green ink. If you ever retire and become respectable, come and see me. I want to meet you, for I have met all the other great men of my time. That trick of yours, of getting one detective to arrest the other, was the most splendid scene in French history. On the front of the card was engraved, in the formal fashion, Prince Saradine, Reed House, Reed Island, Norfolk. He had not troubled much about the prince then, beyond ascertaining that he had been a brilliant and fashionable figure in southern Italy. In his youth, it was said, he had eloped with a married woman of high rank. The escapade was scarcely startling in his social world, but it had clung to men's minds because of an additional tragedy, the alleged suicide of the insulted husband who appeared to have flung himself over a precipice in Sicily. The prince then lived in Vienna for a time, but his more recent years seemed to have been passed in perpetual and restless travel. But when Flambeau, like the prince himself, had left European celebrity and settled in England, it occurred to him that he might pay a surprise visit to this eminent exile in the Norfolk Broads. 
whether he should find the place he had no idea, and, indeed, it was sufficiently small and forgotten. But, as things fell out, he found it much sooner than he expected. They had moored their boat one night under a bank veiled in high grasses and short pollarded trees. Sleep, after heavy sculling, had come to them early, and by a corresponding accident they awoke before it was light. To speak more strictly, they awoke before it was daylight, for a large lemon moon was only just setting in the forest of high grass above their heads, and the sky was of a vivid violet blue, nocturnal but bright. Both men had simultaneously a reminiscence of childhood, of the elfin and adventurous time when tall weeds close over us like woods. Standing up thus against the large low moon, the daisies really seemed to be giant daisies, the dandelions to be giant dandelions. Somehow it reminded them of the dado of a nursery wallpaper. The drop of the riverbed sufficed to sink them under the roots of all the shrubs and flowers and make them gaze upwards at the grass. "'By Jove!' said Flambeau. "'It's like being in fairyland.' Father Brown sat bolt upright in the boat and crossed himself. His movement was so abrupt that his friend asked him, with a mild stare, what was the matter? The people who wrote the medieval ballads, answered the priest, knew more about fairies than you do. It isn't only nice things that happen in fairyland. Oh, bosh, said Flambeau. Only nice things could happen under such an innocent moon. I am for pushing on now, and seeing what does really come. We may die and rot before we ever see again such a moon, or such a mood. All right, said Father Brown. I never said it was always wrong to enter Fairyland. I only said it was always dangerous. They pushed slowly up the brightening river, the glowing violet of the sky and the pale gold of the moon grew fainter and fainter, and faded into that vast colorless cosmos that precedes the colors of the dawn. When the first faint stripes of red and gold and gray split the horizon from end to end, they were broken by the black bulk of a town or village which sat on the river just ahead of them. It was already an easy twilight, in which all things were visible, when they came under the hanging roofs and bridges of this riverside hamlet. The houses, with their long, low, stooping roofs, seemed to come down to drink at the river, like huge gray and red cattle. The broadening and whitening dawn had already turned to working daylight before they saw any living creature on the wharves and bridges of that silent town. Eventually they saw a very placid and prosperous man in his shirt-sleeves, with a face as round as the recently sunken moon, and rays of red whisker around the low arc of it, 
who was leaning on a post above the sluggish tide. By an impulse not to be analyzed, Flambeau rose to his full height in the swaying boat and shouted at the man to ask if he knew Reed Island or Reed House. The prosperous man's smile grew slightly more expansive, and he simply pointed up the river towards the next bend of it. Flambeau went ahead without further speech. The boat took many such grassy corners and followed many such reedy and silent reaches of river, but before the search had become monotonous, they had swung round a specially sharp angle and come into the silence of a sort of pool or lake, the sight of which instinctively arrested them. For in the middle of this wider piece of water, fringed on every side with rushes, lay a long, low islet, along which ran a long, low house or bungalow, built of bamboo or some kind of tough tropic cane. The upstanding rods of bamboo, which made the walls, were pale yellow. The sloping rods that made the roof were of darker red or brown. Otherwise the long house was a thing of repetition and monotony. The early morning breeze rustled the reeds round the island, and sang in the strange ribbed house as in a giant pan-pipe. "'By George!' cried Flambeau. "'Here is the place after all. Here is Reed Island, if ever there was one. Here is Reed House, if it is anywhere. I believe that fat man with whiskers was a fairy.' Perhaps, remarked Father Brown impartially. If he was, he was a bad fairy. But even as he spoke, the impetuous flambeau had run his boat ashore in the rattling reeds, and they stood in the long, quaint islet beside the odd and silent house. The house stood with its back, as it were, to the river and the only landing stage, the main entrance was on the other side, and looked down the long island garden. The visitors approached it, therefore, by a small path running round nearly three sides of the house, close under the low eaves. Through three different windows, on three different sides, they looked in on the same long, well-lit room, panelled in light wood, with a large number of looking-glasses, and laid out as for an elegant lunch. The front door, when they came round to it at last, was flanked by two turquoise-blue flower-pots. It was opened by a butler of the drearier type, long, lean, grey, and listless, who murmured that Prince Saradine was from home at present, but was expected hourly the house being kept ready for him and his guests. The exhibition of the card with the scrawl of green ink awoke a flicker of life in the parchment face of the depressed retainer, and it was with a certain shaky courtesy that he suggested that the stranger should remain. His Highness may be here any minute, he said, and would be distressed to have just missed any gentleman he had invited. We have orders always to keep a little cold lunch for him and his friends, 
and I am sure he would wish it to be offered. Moved with curiosity to this minor adventure, Flambeau assented gracefully, and followed the old man, who ushered him ceremoniously into the long, lightly panelled room. There was nothing very notable about it, except the rather unusual alternation of many long, low windows with many long, low oblongs of looking-glass, which gave a singular air of lightness and unsubstantialness to the place. It was somehow like lunching out of doors. One or two pictures of a quiet kind hung in the corners, one a large grey photograph of a very young man in uniform, another a red chalk sketch of two long-haired boys. Asked by Flambeau whether the soldierly person was the prince, the butler answered shortly in the negative. It was the prince's younger brother, Captain Stephen Saradine, he said. And with that the old man seemed to dry up suddenly and lose all taste for conversation. After lunch had tailed off with exquisite coffee and liqueurs, the guests were introduced to the garden, the library, and the housekeeper, a dark, handsome lady, of no little majesty, and rather like a plutonic Madonna. It appeared that she and the butler were the only survivors of the prince's original foreign menage, all the other servants now in the house being new and collected in Norfolk by the housekeeper. This latter lady went by the name of Mrs. Anthony, but she spoke with a slight Italian accent, and Flambeau did not doubt that Anthony was a Norfolk version of some more Latin name. Mr. Paul, the butler, also had a faintly foreign air, but he was in tongue and training English, as are many of the most polished men-servants of the cosmopolitan nobility. Pretty and unique as it was, the place had about it a curious luminous sadness. Hours passed in it like days. The long, well-windowed rooms were full of daylight, but it seemed a dead daylight. And through all other incidental noises, the sound of talk, the clink of glasses, or the passing feet of servants, they could hear on all sides of the house the melancholy noise of the river. We have taken a wrong turning, and come to the wrong place, said Father Brown, looking out of the window at the grey-green sedges and the silver flood. Never mind, one can sometimes do good by being the right person in the wrong place. Father Brown, though commonly a silent, was an oddly sympathetic little man, and in those few but endless hours he unconsciously sank deeper into the secrets of Reed House than his professional friend. He had that knack of friendly silence which is so essential to gossip, and scarcely saying a word, he probably obtained from his new acquaintances 
all that in any case they would have told. The butler, indeed, was naturally uncommunicative. He betrayed a sullen and almost animal affection for his master, who, he said, had been very badly treated. The chief offender seemed to be his highness's brother, whose name alone would lengthen the old man's lantern jaws and pucker his parrot nose into a sneer. Captain Stephen was a ne'er-do-weel, apparently, and had drained his benevolent brother of hundreds and thousands, forced him to fly from fashionable life and live quietly in this retreat. That was all Paul, the butler, would say, and Paul was obviously a partisan. The Italian housekeeper was somewhat more communicative, being, as Brown fancied, somewhat less content. Her tone about her master was faintly acid, though not without a certain awe. Flambeau and his friend were standing in the room of the looking-glasses, examining the red sketch of the two boys, when the housekeeper swept in swiftly on some domestic errand. It was a peculiarity of this glittering, glass-paneled place that anyone entering was reflected in four or five mirrors at once, and Father Brown, without turning round, stopped in the middle of a sentence of family criticism. But Flambeau, who had his face close up to the picture, was already saying in a loud voice, "'The brothers Saradine, I suppose,' They both look innocent enough. It would be hard to say which is the good brother and which the bad. Then, realizing the lady's presence, he turned the conversation with some triviality and strolled out into the garden. But Father Brown still gazed steadily at the red crayon sketch, and Mrs. Anthony still gazed steadily at Father Brown. She had large and tragic brown eyes, and her olive face glowed darkly with a curious and painful wonder, as of one doubtful of a stranger's identity or purpose. Whether the little priest's coat and creed touched some southern memories of confession, or whether she fancied he knew more than he did, she said to him in a low voice, as to a fellow plotter, he is right enough in one way, your friend. He says it would be hard to pick out the good and bad brothers. Oh, it would be hard, it would be mighty hard, to pick out the good one. I don't understand you, said Father Brown, and began to move away. The woman took a step nearer to him, with thunderous brows and a sort of savage stoop like a bull lowering his horns. "'There isn't a good one,' she hissed. "'There was badness enough in the captain taking all that money, but I don't think there was much goodness in the prince giving it. The captain's not the only one with something against him.' A light dawned on the cleric's averted face, and his mouth formed silently the word blackmail. Even as he did so, 
the woman turned an abrupt white face over her shoulder and almost fell. The door had opened soundlessly, and the pale Paul stood like a ghost in the doorway. By the weird trick of the reflecting walls, it seemed as if five Pauls had entered by five doors simultaneously. His Highness, he said, has just arrived. In the same flash the figure of a man had passed outside the first window, crossing the sunlit pane like a lighted stage. An instant later he passed at the second window, and the many mirrors repainted in successive frames the same eagle profile and marching figure. He was erect and alert, but his hair was white and his complexion of an odd ivory yellow. He had that short, curved Roman nose which generally goes with long, lean cheeks and chin, but these were partly masked by a mustache and imperial. The mustache was much darker than the beard, giving an effect slightly theatrical, and he was dressed up to the same dashing part, having a white top hat, an orchid in his coat, a yellow waistcoat and yellow gloves, which he flapped and swung as he walked. When he came round to the front door, they heard the stiff Paul open it, and heard the new arrival say cheerfully, Well, you see I have come. The stiff Mr. Paul bowed, and answered in his inaudible manner. For a few minutes their conversation could not be heard. Then the butler said, Everything is at your disposal. And the glove-flapping Prince Saradine came gaily into the room to greet them. They beheld once more that spectral scene. Five princes entering a room with five doors. The prince put the white hat and yellow gloves on the table and offered his hand quite cordially. Delighted to see you here, Mr. Flambeau, he said. Knowing you very well by reputation, if that's not an indiscreet remark. Not at all, answered Flambeau, laughing. I am not sensitive. Very few reputations are gained by unsullied virtue. The prince flashed a sharp look at him to see if the retort had any personal point. Then he laughed also and offered chairs to everyone, including himself. Pleasant little place, this, I think, he said with a detached air. Not much to do, I fear, but the fishing is really good. The priest, who was staring at him with the grave stare of a baby, was haunted by some fancy that escaped definition. He looked at the gray, carefully curled hair, yellow-white visage, and slim, somewhat foppish figure. These were not unnatural, though perhaps a shade prononcé, like the outfit of a figure behind the footlights. The nameless interest lay in something else, in the very framework of the face. Brown was tormented with a half-memory of having seen it somewhere before. 
the man looked like some old friend of his, dressed up. Then he suddenly remembered the mirrors, and put his fancy down to some psychological effect of that multiplication of human masks. Prince Saradine distributed his social attentions between his guests with great gaiety and tact. Finding the detective of a sporting turn and eager to employ his holiday, he guided Flambeau and Flambeau's boat down to the best fishing spot in the stream, and was back in his own canoe in twenty minutes to join Father Brown in the library and plunge, equally politely, into the priest's more philosophic pleasures. He seemed to know a great deal both about the fishing and the books, though of these not the most edifying. He spoke five or six languages, though chiefly the slang of each. He had evidently lived in varied cities and very motley societies, for some of his cheerfulest stories were about gambling hells and opium dens, Australian bush rangers, or Italian brigands. Father Brown knew that the once celebrated Saradine had spent his last few years in almost ceaseless travel, but he had not guessed that the travels were so disreputable or so amusing. Indeed, with all his dignity of a man of the world, Prince Saradine radiated to such sensitive observers as the priest a certain atmosphere of the restless and even the unreliable. His face was fastidious, but his eye was wild. He had little nervous tricks, like a man shaken by drink or drugs, and he neither had, nor professed to have, his hand on the helm of household affairs. All these were left to the two old servants especially to the butler, who was plainly the central pillar of the house. Mr. Paul, indeed, was not so much a butler as a sort of steward, or even chamberlain. He dined privately, but with almost as much pomp as his master. He was feared by all the servants, and he consulted with the prince decorously, but somewhat unbendingly, rather as if he were the prince's solicitor. The somber housekeeper was a mere shadow in comparison. Indeed, she seemed to efface herself and wait only on the butler, and Brown heard no more of those volcanic whispers which had half told him of the younger brother who blackmailed the elder. Whether the prince was really being thus bled by the absent captain, he could not be certain. But there was something insecure and secretive about Saradine that made the tale by no means incredible. When they went once more into the long hall with the windows and the mirrors, yellow evening was dropping over the waters and the willowy banks, and a bittern sounded in the distance like an elf upon his dwarfish drum. The same singular sentiment of some sad and evil fairyland crossed the priest's mind again like a little gray cloud. I wish Flambeau were back, he muttered. Do you believe in doom? asked the
the restless Prince Saradine suddenly. No, answered his guest. I believe in doomsday. The prince turned from the window and stared at him in a singular manner, his face in shadow against the sunset. What do you mean? he asked. I mean that we here are on the wrong side of the tapestry, answered Father Brown. The things that happen here do not seem to mean anything. They mean something somewhere else. Somewhere else, retribution will come on the real offender. Here, it often seems to fall on the wrong person. The prince made an inexplicable noise like an animal. In his shadowed face, the eyes were shining queerly. A new and shrewd thought exploded silently in the other's mind. Was there another meaning in Saradine's blend of brilliancy and abruptness? Was the prince, was he perfectly sane? He was repeating, the wrong person, the wrong person, many more times than was natural in a social exclamation. Then Father Brown awoke tardily to a second truth. In the mirrors before him, he could see the silent door standing open, and the silent Mr. Paul standing in it, with his usual pallid impassiveness. I thought it better to announce at once, he said, with the same stiff respectfulness as of an old family lawyer. A boat rowed by six men has come to the landing stage, and there's a gentleman sitting in the stern. A boat, repeated the prince. A gentleman? And he rose to his feet. There was a startled silence punctuated only by the odd noise of the bird in the sedge. And then, before anyone could speak again, a new face and figure passed in profile round the three sunlit windows, as the prince had passed an hour or two before. But except for the accident that both outlines were aquiline, they had little in common. Instead of the new white topper of Saradine, was a black one of antiquated or foreign shape. Under it was a young and very solemn face, clean-shaven, blue about its resolute chin, and carrying a faint suggestion of the young Napoleon. The association was assisted by something old and odd about the whole get-up, as of a man who had never troubled to change the fashions of his father's. He had a shabby blue frock coat, a red, soldierly-looking waistcoat, and a kind of coarse white trousers common among the early Victorians, but strangely incongruous today. From all this old clothes shop, his olive face stood out strangely young and monstrously sincere. The deuce, said Prince Saradine, and clapping on his white hat, he went to the front door himself, flinging it open on the sunset garden. By that time, the newcomer and his followers were drawn up on the lawn like a small stage army. 
the six boatmen had pulled the boat well up on the shore and were guarding it almost menacingly, holding their oars erect like spears. They were swarthy men, and some of them wore earrings. But one of them stood forward beside the olive-faced young man in the red waistcoat and carried a large black case of unfamiliar form. "'Your name,' said the young man, "'is Saradine?' Saradine assented rather negligently. The newcomer had dull, dog-like brown eyes, as different as possible from the restless and glittering gray eyes of the prince. But once again Father Brown was tortured with a sense of having seen somewhere a replica of the face, and once again he remembered the repetitions of the glass-paneled room and put down the coincidence to that. "'Confound this crystal palace,' he muttered. "'One sees everything too many times. "'It's like a dream.' "'If you are Prince Saradine,' said the young man, "'I may tell you that my name is Antonelli.' "'Antonelli,' repeated the prince languidly. "'Somehow I remember the name.' "'Permit me to present myself,' said the young Italian. "'With his left hand he politely took off his old-fashioned top-hat. "'With his right he caught Prince Saradine so ringing a crack across the face "'that the white top-hat rolled down the steps "'and one of the blue flower-pots rocked upon its pedestal. "'The prince, whatever he was,' was evidently not a coward. He sprang at his enemy's throat and almost bore him backwards to the grass. But his enemy extricated himself with a singularly inappropriate air of hurried politeness. "'That is all right,' he said, panting and in halting English. "'I have insulted. I will give satisfaction. "'Marco,' Open the case. The man beside him with the earrings and the big black case proceeded to unlock it. He took out of it two long Italian rapiers with splendid steel hilts and blades which he planted point downwards in the lawn. The strange young man standing facing the entrance with his yellow and vindictive face, the two swords standing up in the turf like two crosses in a cemetery, and the line of the ranked rowers behind, gave it all an odd appearance of being some barbaric court of justice. But everything else was unchanged, so sudden had been the interruption. The sunset gold still glowed on the lawn, and the bittern still boomed as announcing some small but dreadful destiny. "'Prince Saradine,' said the man called Antonelli, "'when I was an infant in the cradle, "'you killed my father and stole my mother. "'My father was the more fortunate. "'You did not kill him fairly, "'as I am going to kill you. "'You and my wicked mother "'took him driving to a lonely pass in Sicily, "'flung him down a cliff, "'and went on your way.' 
I could imitate you if I chose, but imitating you is too vile. I have followed you all over the world, and you have always fled from me. But this is the end of the world, and of you. I have you now, and I give you the chance you never gave my father. Choose one of those swords. Prince Saradine, with contracted brows, seemed to hesitate a moment, but his ears were still singing with the blow, and he sprang forward and snatched at one of the hilts. Father Brown had also sprung forward, striving to compose the dispute, but he soon found his personal presence made matters worse. Saradine was a French Freemason and a fierce atheist, and a priest moved him by the law of contraries. And for the other man, neither priest nor layman moved him at all. This young man with the Bonaparte face and the brown eyes was something far sterner than a Puritan, a pagan. He was a simple slayer from the morning of the earth, a man of the Stone Age, a man of stone. One hope remained, the summoning of the household, and Father Brown ran back into the house. He found, however, that all the under-servants had been given a holiday ashore by the autocrat Paul, and that only the somber Mrs. Anthony moved uneasily about the long rooms. But the moment she turned a ghastly face upon him, he resolved one of the riddles of the House of Mirrors. The heavy brown eyes of Antonelli were the heavy brown eyes of Mrs. Anthony, and in a flash he saw half the story. "'Your son is outside,' he said, without wasting words. "'Either he or the prince will be killed. Where is Mr. Paul?' "'He is at the landing stage,' said the woman faintly. He is, he is, signaling for help. Mrs. Anthony, said Father Brown seriously, there is no time for nonsense. My friend has his boat down the river fishing. Your son's boat is guarded by your son's men. There is only this one canoe. What is Mr. Paul doing with it? Santa Maria, I do not know, she said and swooned all her length on the matted floor. Father Brown lifted her to a sofa, flung a pot of water over her, shouted for help, and then rushed down to the landing stage of the little island. But the canoe was already in midstream, and old Paul was pulling and pushing it up the river with an energy incredible at his years. I will save my master, he cried, his eyes blazing maniacally. I will save him yet. Father Brown could do nothing but gaze after the boat as it struggled upstream and pray that the old man might waken the little town in time. A duel is bad enough, he muttered, rubbing up his rough, dust-colored hair. But there's something wrong about this duel even as a duel. 
I feel it in my bones. But what can it be? As he stood staring at the water, a wavering mirror of sunset, he heard from the other end of the island garden a small but unmistakable sound, the cold concussion of steel. He turned his head. Away on the farthest cape or headland of the long islet, on a strip of turf beyond the last rank of roses, the duelists had already crossed swords. Evening above them was a dome of virgin gold, and, distant as they were, every detail was picked out. They had cast off their coats, but the yellow waistcoat and white hair of Saradine, the red waistcoat and white trousers of Antonelli, glittered in the level light like the colors of the dancing clockwork dolls. The two swords sparkled from point to pommel like two diamond pins. There was something frightful in the two figures, appearing so little and so gay. They looked like two butterflies, trying to pin each other to a cork. Father Brown ran as hard as he could, his little legs going like a wheel. But when he came to the field of combat, he found he was both too late and too early. Too late to stop the strife, under the shadow of the grim Sicilians leaning on their oars, and too early to anticipate any disastrous issue of it. For the two men were singularly well matched, the prince using his skill with a sort of cynical confidence, the Sicilian using his with a murderous care. Few finer fencing matches can ever have been seen in crowded amphitheaters than that which tinkled and sparkled on that forgotten island in the reedy river. The dizzy fight was balanced so long that hope began to revive in the protesting priest. By all common probability, Paul must soon come back with the police. It would be some comfort even if Flambeau came back from his fishing, for Flambeau, physically speaking, was worth four other men. But there was no sign of Flambeau, and, what was much queerer, no sign of Paul or the police. No other raft or stick was left to float on. In that lost island, in that vast nameless pool, they were cut off as on a rock in the Pacific. Almost as he had the thought, the ringing of the rapiers quickened to a rattle. The prince's arms flew up, and the point shot out behind between his shoulder blades. He went over with a great whirling movement, almost like one throwing the half of a boy's cartwheel. The sword flew from his hand like a shooting star, and dived into the distant river. And he himself sank with so earth-shaking a subsidence that he broke a big rose-tree with his body and shook up into the sky a cloud of red earth, like the smoke of some heathen sacrifice. The Sicilian had made blood-offering to the ghost of his father. The priest was instantly on his knees by the corpse, 
but only to make too sure that it was a corpse. As he was still trying some last hopeless tests, he heard for the first time voices from farther up the river, and saw a police boat shoot up to the landing stage, with constables and other important people, including the excited Paul. The little priest rose with a distinctly dubious grimace. Now, why on earth, he muttered, why on earth couldn't he have come before? Some seven minutes later, the island was occupied by an invasion of townsfolk and police, and the latter had put their hands on the victorious duelist, ritually reminding him that anything he said might be used against him. I shall not say anything, said the monomaniac, with a wonderful and peaceful face. I shall never say anything more. I am very happy, and I only want to be hanged. Then he shut his mouth as they led him away, and it is the strange but certain truth that he never opened it again in this world, except to say guilty at his trial. Father Brown had stared at the suddenly crowded garden, the arrest of the man of blood, the carrying away of the corpse after its examination by the doctor, rather as one watches the break-up of some ugly dream. He was motionless, like a man in a nightmare. He gave his name and address as a witness, but declined their offer of a boat to the shore, and remained alone in the island garden, gazing at the broken rose-bush and the whole green theatre of that swift and inexplicable tragedy. The light died along the river, mist rose in the marshy banks, a few belated birds flitted fitfully across. Stuck stubbornly in his subconscious, which was an unusually lively one, was an unspeakable certainty that there was something still unexplained. This sense that had clung to him all day could not be fully explained by his fancy about looking-glass land. Somehow he had not seen the real story, but some game or mask. And yet people do not get hanged or run through for the sake of a charade. As he sat on the steps of the landing stage ruminating, he grew conscious of the tall, dark streak of a sail coming silently down the shining river, and sprang to his feet with such a back rush of feeling that he almost wept. Flambeau! he cried, and shook his friend by both hands again and again, much to the astonishment of that sportsman, as he came on shore with his fishing tackle. Flambeau! he said. So you're not killed? Killed? repeated the angler in great astonishment. And why should I be killed? Oh, because nearly everybody else is, said his companion rather wildly. Saradine got murdered, and Antonelli wants to be hanged, and his mother's fainted, and I, for one, don't know whether I'm in this world or the next. But, thank God, you're in the same one. 
and he took the bewildered Flambeau's arm. As they turned from the landing stage, they came under the eaves of the low bamboo house, and looked in through one of the windows, as they had done on their first arrival. They beheld a lamp-lit interior, well calculated to arrest their eyes. The table in the long dining-room had been laid for dinner when Saradine's destroyer had fallen like a storm-bolt on the island. And the dinner was now in placid progress, for Mrs. Anthony sat somewhat sullenly at the foot of the table, while at the head of it was Mr. Paul, the major-domo, eating and drinking of the best, his bleared, bluish eyes standing queerly out of his face, his gaunt countenance inscrutable, but by no means devoid of satisfaction. With a gesture of powerful impatience, Flambeau rattled at the window, wrenched it open, and put an indignant head into the lamp-lit room. Well, he cried, I can understand you may need some refreshment, but really to steal your master's dinner while he lies murdered in the garden? I have stolen a great many things in a long and pleasant life, replied the strange old gentleman placidly. This dinner is one of the few things I have not stolen. This dinner and this house and garden happen to belong to me. A thought flashed across Flambeau's face. You mean to say, he began, that the will of Prince Saradine? I am Prince Saradine, said the old man, munching a salted almond. Father Brown, who was looking at the birds outside, jumped as if he were shot, and put in at the window a pale face like a turnip. You are what? he repeated in a shrill voice. Paul, Prince Saradine, à vos ordres, said the venerable person politely, lifting a glass of sherry. I live here very quietly, being a domestic kind of fellow, and for the sake of modesty I am called Mr. Paul, to distinguish me from my unfortunate brother, Mr. Stephen. He died, I hear, recently, in the garden. Of course, it is not my fault if enemies pursue him to this place. It is owing to the regrettable irregularity of his life. He was not a domestic character. He relapsed into silence, and continued to gaze at the opposite wall, just above the bowed and somber head of the woman. They saw plainly the family likeness that had haunted them in the dead man. Then his shoulders began to heave and shake a little, as if he were choking, but his face did not alter. "'My God!' cried Flambeau, after a pause. "'He's laughing!' "'Come away,' said Father Brown, who was quite white. "'Come away from this house of hell. "'Let us get into an honest boat again.' Night had sunk on rushes and river by the time they had pushed off from the island, and they went downstream in the dark, 
warming themselves with two big cigars that glowed like crimson ship's lanterns. Father Brown took his cigar out of his mouth and said, I suppose you can guess the whole story now. After all, it's a primitive story. A man had two enemies. He was a wise man, and so he discovered that two enemies are better than one. I do not follow that, answered Flambeau. Oh, it's really simple, rejoined his friend. Simple, though anything but innocent. Both the Saradines were scamps, but the prince, the elder, was the sort of scamp that gets to the top, and the younger, the captain, was the sort that sinks to the bottom. This squalid officer fell from beggar to blackmailer, and one ugly day he got his hold upon his brother, the prince. Obviously, it was for no light matter, for Prince Paul Saradine was frankly fast and had no reputation to lose as to mere sins of society. In plain fact, it was a hanging matter, and Stephen literally had a rope round his brother's neck. He had somehow discovered the truth about the Sicilian affair, and could prove that Paul murdered old Antonelli in the mountains. The captain raked in the hush money for ten years, until even the prince's splendid fortune began to look a little foolish. But Prince Saradine bore another burden besides his blood-sucking brother. He knew that the son of Antonelli, a mere child at the time of the murder, had been trained in savage Sicilian loyalty, and lived only to avenge his father, not with the gibbet, for he lacked Stephen's legal proof, but with the old weapons of vendetta. The boy had practiced arms with a deadly perfection, and about the time that he was old enough to use them, Prince Saradine began, as the society paper said, to travel. The fact is that he began to flee for his life, passing from place to place like a hunted criminal, but with one relentless man upon his trail. That was Prince Paul's position, and by no means a pretty one. The more money he spent on eluding Antonelli, the less he had to silence Stephen. The more he gave to silence Stephen, the less chance there was of finally escaping Antonelli. Then it was that he showed himself a great man, a genius like Napoleon. Instead of resisting his two antagonists, he surrendered suddenly to both of them. He gave way like a Japanese wrestler, and his foes fell prostrate before him. He gave up the race round the world, and he gave up his address to young Antonelli. Then he gave up everything to his brother. He sent Stephen money enough for smart clothes and easy travel, with a letter saying roughly, This is all I have left. You have cleaned me out. I still have a little house in Norfolk, with servants and a cellar, 
and if you want more from me you must take that. Come and take possession if you like, and I will live there quietly as your friend or agent or anything. He knew that the Sicilian had never seen the Saradine brothers save, perhaps, in pictures. He knew they were somewhat alike, both having grey, pointed beards. Then he shaved his own face and waited. The trap worked. The unhappy captain, in his new clothes, entered the house in triumph as a prince, and walked upon the Sicilian sword. There was one hitch, and it is to the honor of human nature. Evil spirits like Saradine often blunder by never expecting the virtues of mankind. He took it for granted that the Italian's blow, when it came, would be dark, violent, and nameless, like the blow it avenged. That the victim would be knifed at night, or shot from behind a hedge, and so die without speech. It was a bad minute for Prince Paul when Antonelli's chivalry proposed a formal duel, with all its possible explanations. It was then that I found him putting off in his boat with wild eyes. He was fleeing, bareheaded, in an open boat before Antonelli should learn who he was. But, however agitated, he was not hopeless. He knew the adventurer, and he knew the fanatic. It was quite probable that Stephen, the adventurer, would hold his tongue, through his mere histrionic pleasure in playing a part, his lust for clinging to his new cosy quarters, his rascal's trust in luck, and his fine fencing. It was certain that Antonelli, the fanatic, would hold his tongue, and be hanged without telling tales of his family. Paul hung about on the river till he knew the fight was over. Then he roused the town, brought the police, saw his two vanquished enemies taken away forever, and sat down smiling to his dinner. "'Laughing, God help us,' said Flambeau, with a strong shudder. "'Do they get such ideas from Satan?' He got that idea from you, answered the priest. God forbid, ejaculated Flambeau. From me? What do you mean? The priest pulled a visiting card from his pocket and held it up in the faint glow of his cigar. It was scrawled with green ink. Don't you remember his original invitation to you? he asked, and the compliment to your criminal exploit? That trick of yours, he says, of getting one detective to arrest the other. He has just copied your trick. With an enemy on each side of him, he slipped swiftly out of the way and let them collide and kill each other. Flambeau tore Prince Saradine's card from the priest's hands and rent it savagely in small pieces. There's the last of that old skull and crossbones, he said, as he scattered the pieces upon the dark and disappearing waves of the stream. But I should think it would poison the fishes. The last gleam of white card and green ink 
was drowned and darkened. A faint and vibrant color as of morning changed the sky, and the moon behind the grasses grew paler. They drifted in silence. Father, said Flambeau suddenly, do you think it was all a dream? The priest shook his head, whether in dissent or agnosticism, but remained mute. A smell of hawthorn and of orchards came to them through the darkness, telling them that a wind was awake. The next moment it swayed their little boat and swelled their sail, and carried them onward down the winding river to happier places and the homes of harmless men. End of the Sins of Prince Saradine